leather jacket and that leather bag and that hat hanging on the wall. Just so it's not too much to carry, babe. Could I see you again next fall? WIOX is supported by you and the following underwriters. The Mountain Eagle, the community newspaper and website serving the Catskills region, covering Delaware, Schoharie, Green, and northern Ulster counties. With local reporting, regional events, school sports, letters, and features. All in the Mountain Eagle. Pika Moose Restaurant on State Route 28 in Big Indian. With farm-to-table cuisine Thursday through Monday. Indoor dining from 4 to 9 p.m. Take out till 10. Picamoose.com or 845-254-6500. 845-254-6500. Delaware County Solid Waste Management Center in Walton. Open 7.30 to 2.30 Tuesday through Saturday for waste disposal and recycling. In service to make a difference by reducing pollution in Delaware County. Delaware County Solid Waste Management Center. State Route 10 in Walton. 607-832-5800. Or click the Delaware County Solid Waste Management Center link at WIOXradio.org. You're tuned to WIOX Roxbury, your live and local soundtrack for fall adventures when you cruise the counties, towns, and villages in the Catskills region. Colchester, Downsville, Deposit, Hancock. There's fall foliage, a harvest hops festival, horseback riding, farmer's markets, fishing, kayaking, or whatever floats your boat. So tool around and stay tuned. Find links to autumn activities in the Catskills at WIOXradio.org. Listening to WIOX Community Radio, live and local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM and MTC Cable Channel 20 at 107.5 on the campus of SUNY Delhi and everywhere at WIOXradio.org on 
computers or smartphones. This is From the Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Talk about a different forest-related topic with Ryan and John. John, how's it going? I'm good, Ryan. How are you? All right. Uh, these uh, last days of summer, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, last warm day in the forecast today, right? Yeah. And then uh, we'll get back to fall, you know. 30s at night coming up. Yeah, I'm looking forward to fall. I like fall. But um, I don't know. What have you been up to in the woods? Uh, just short walks. I haven't been doing anything outstanding this week. But um, I don't know. I'm trying to catch up, find the last few mushrooms in the woods. I haven't been able to find some edibles that I want to bring home. But I did see some older hen of the woods and on some mushroom logs. Yeah, yesterday, last night, I saw some chicken oh not chicken uh golden chanterelles actually you found some but they were soggy and passed so i could not mm. pass uh pick them but so that was too bad to not not get them on time but um been out looking for some ginseng and had some luck and that plant is it really likes to hide but uh it is out there but um i don't know it's uh it hides, like I said. It, you yeah. know, it could be right in front of you sometimes. Well, it's time to start thinking about the almighty whitetail anyway. That's right. Scouted out a new spot the, the, the other day and <laughs> never never even set foot on the property. Just walked straight up where I thought there might be deer. Found a shed antler from a nice-sized buck from the year before. So I think I'm in the spot. There you go. There you go. Well, we got a uh, full show tonight. It's Fishing, Climate Change, and New Regulations on the Esopus with Ed Ostopchuk. He's a master fly tire member of the Catskill Fly Tires Guild. He's written numerous articles, essays, columns, and a few books. 1991, Trophy Trout Streams of the Northeast was published and included a chapter on the Esopus written by Ed. 2012, wrote Ramblings and a second book called The Wanderings of a Mountain Fly Fisher, in 2022 he's a chapter officer of the ashokan papatan chapter of trout unlimited regularly contributes to conversations with the dec and dep let me see if i can get ed on the line ed are you there yes i am so i can't be with you but you know i had car problems so i'm happy to participate this way i know that where, where are you calling from for our listeners ed i'm home in shokan new york All not right. too far from the shokan reservoir and five minutes from the sobis creek Cool. So, Ed, uh, what got you into fishing anyway? Well, as uh, about an eight-year-old, I was uh, spent a week with my uncle, my, my godfather, and he lived on the Roy River down in New Jersey, and he bought me a fishing pole. And I walked the river, and there used to be bed springs in it, and tires, and chubs, and carp, and a few stock trout, and I really got interested in fishing from that point on. So that developed my interest a long, long time ago, almost uh, 60 years ago. So, hmm. And um, what what made you be so attracted to the Catskills and, and trout fishing? What, what makes the Catskills so special, I guess? I guess in, in 1969, I read an article by Cecil Hecox, who was a fisheries biologist down in New Paltz and eventually became an, uh, uh, a... a uh, 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 higher up in uh, DEC up in Albany. A deputy commissioner. He wrote an article called uh, "Charm Circle of Catskills," and I had fished the Beaver Kill and Willowemock and things like that. And when I graduated from college, I took an interview at IBM, who was fairly prevalent in the Kingston back then, 1970. And I came up for a sole purpose of just checking out the Esopus. I had no desire to work for IBM. I had offers down there. I didn't do that well in computer programming. I came up. I checked out the Esopus, and I fell in love with it. And at the time. I asked my wife if she'd move up here, and, and we did. 
So I've been up here since 1970, uh, just in love with the Catskills. I mean, I, it's something else where I live. I mean, there's trout abound around here. What, what makes you? What makes the Asopus different than other streams in the, in the Catskills? I guess. Well, I think the Asopus. First of all, it's a tailwater. Believe it or not, I mean, it's a Shandekan tunnel that delivers water from the Skahari Reservoir. It's an 18 mile aqueduct between the Skahari Reservoir and the Asopus Creek. It delivers cold water for the most part. Sometimes it does warm up in the summer. I mean, there's a limited amount of cold water in the Skahari Reservoir, but when it's cold, it keeps the Asopus cold and there's a number of wild rainbows in it and wild browns in it. And uh, and I think the fact that it has this uh, abundance of cold water is a major uh, asset. Just like, you know, the, the uh, tailwaters blow the Neversink, the Papactin, and the Cannesville, all that cold water really, really supports wild, wild trout fisheries for sure. Is it the trout numbers or just the quality and the native fish that uh, inspires you? Well, I, I, both. I mean, the Asopus is probably known for its rainbows. There's probably a lot of them. Most of them are probably, this time of year, probably 8 to 9 inches. In the springtime, you get them from 12 to 14, 16 and bigger. Uh, the browns run up from the Ashoka Reservoir in the fall. So next month, a uh, good time to throw streamers or lures or whatever you like to fish. You may intercept a brown that's running up the spawn from the Ashoka in the Asopus somewhere. And uh, so the fish vary. It depends on time of year. In the summer, uh, I don't fish the Asopus that much when it gets to be 70 degrees. It's, it's too warm then. And if you do fish it then, chances are you may hit some smallmouth bass and, and chubs or fall fish in addition to trout. I mean, so it's a function of time of year, what you find in the stream. Do you, do you fish out other mountain ranges at all? The, the two that I really love, the Asopus Creek and also the Neversink. I fish the Neversink both above and below the, the uh, New York City's reservoir. I'm a member of a couple clubs up on the upper Never Sink, and I fish below the Never Sink for large brown trout. Uh, below the New York City Reservoir, some very large brown trout in here. And I tend to go over there on cloudy days when I throw streamers or in the spring or the fall when there might be some hatches. And uh, you, you can catch fish up there 16 inches and better on a regular basis, or one or two a trip anyway. Uh, and I also like the Round Out Creek. I wanted to fish there today, given the warm weather, but... Being without a vehicle, that was not in the card, so um, so I stayed home, did what I had to do. How do these Catskill streams compare to other areas? Like uh, here, the Sable River and um, the Adirondacks, and there's various places and other mountain ranges too. Well, the Asopus was classified as a wild trout stream, meaning there's at least three to four hundred. I think. It, let me just look at my notes for a minute. There's at least uh, three hundred fish, wild fish per mile. All right. The Osable, which is a great trout stream in and of itself, is a uh, stocked extended stream, meaning there's a, a mix of wild fish and hatchery fish. But I think there's a dependency on hatchery fish to keep the fishery going. Uh, so the Asopus is uh, one of the premier tree, uh, streams in New York State, in my opinion. I think DEC feel the same way if you look at their latest document that was published in August of uh, this year in terms of the numbers of fish, not necessarily the size of fish. For example, the West Branch of Delaware, that's far bigger fish on average, far bigger fish, far bigger browns. But the Asopus, in terms of numbers of fish, the numbers of wild fish, there's a lot of wild fish in it, which is a good, good indicator. I think those rainbows tend to drop down to the Ashoka Reservoir when they get to be about 9, 10 inches, and the browns probably do the same thing, whereas in other streams, 
they don't have, like, below the Cannonsville uh, Dam and below the Papacton. They don't have a place to drop down to, so they're going to stay in that cold water regime. Huh. Okay. What about, um, you know, different types of, of trout, you know, and, and different across different streams, brown trout, brook trout, rainbow? Well, the Sobus has all three, although when you catch brook trout, you really have to fish probably above Big Indian and maybe up in Oliver Ridge, and there's not much public fishing up there. I mean, there's places that are on post that there is some state land up there, and, and if you're willing to climb down steep banks, you, you will catch some small brook trout, all right? The Esopus also has a, uh, a good number of browns, but, but I think it's mostly known for its rainbows. This year, I've averaged probably 60 to 80% wild rainbows over brown. In the springtime, it's almost all rainbows. Now, recently, it's 60% rainbows and 40% browns, so the Esopus is a mix of all of them, but it's the brook trout, to get those, you really got to fish the headwaters of the stream and some of the tributaries. A lot, of, I mean, the tri- that's what makes you soap so, so good, to tell you the truth. It's loaded with so many tributaries that are, are spawning areas for fish, where fish can come up, spawn, and they're natural recruitment areas for the, the mainstream itself. You know, they drop down from Woodland Valley, they drop down from Trevor Hollow, they drop down from Broadstreet Hollow, any number of those trips. There's wild fish in they the fish spawn in there, and they drop down to Esopus, and some eventually go down to Ashokan, some may not. So that's what I think makes Esopus so good. It's number of tributaries that, that support wild fish. So, I mean, you've been fishing, you know, if I do the math correct, about 50 years, right, or more? Well, fly fishing, yeah, almost 60 years. I mean, well, fly fishing since I was 17, so I'll be 67, so that's at least 50 years, right? About 50 years, if I did the math real quickly. Um, and, you know, I started with bait, like a lot of other people, and it's a good way to learn, and it was a great way to do it, and then I went fish bait on fly rods, then eventually I just decided I like to try fly fishing itself, and I would, on days I did either really well or really poorly, I would put the bait away and try flies, and over time, and I did this down in Jersey, first over hatchery fish, and when I moved up here, I learned the fishing was quite different, and, and, and that's the thing about this area. You know, when I first moved up here, I realized you don't have to follow hatchery trucks. There's wild fish all over the place for the most part. So stealth is an important thing. I mean, hatchery fish sometimes can be pretty stupid and uh, will hit almost anything. Where wild fish, they're more concerned about surviving another day. Food is not their number one uh, goal. I mean, they're interested in surviving another day. So you have to learn about stealth and how to present the fish and walk a stream and do things like that. So that was a, a learning period for me, especially when I fished the Upper Never Sink. I joined uh, a fly fishing club up there around Frost Valley. And the first year, I probably maybe caught half a dozen fish. I caught that, and I, I'd, see, I'd be spooking fish. I'd be fishing downstream, and eventually I learned to fish upstream and be stealthy. And it taught me a lot about fishing, I mean, how to present flies and how to just whether it's flies or bait or lures, how to not spook wild fish. That's what I learned. So since the 1970s, um, what has changed, do you think? Anything in fishing, culture, the streams? Uh, I think uh, from the Sopas mainstream, when I first came up here in 1970, I didn't see as many people in the summertime. I see more people fishing in the summertime now. I think the reclassification of the Sopas as a wild-quality stream has brought more people here. Uh, I see more people in terms of tributaries. I think the storms have affected them. I see more downed trees, more uh, eroded banks. Um, 
you know, things have changed for sure. I mean, the fish are still there in spite of all we've done to uh, affect them. The fish are still there. Uh, Irene was a big uh, influencer on the Esopus. The rainbows just about disappeared for two years, but they bounced back. Um, so I think the fish will take care of themselves as long as we don't screw up the streams too badly. I mean, um, what are threats to the streams, I guess? I mean, a lot of it, you know, the upper headwaters, you know, a lot of them are state and city, but, you know, further down, what what, what could change? Well, if you're building floodplains, that's a problem. Um, if you um, remove too much vegetation right along the stream so that the banks themselves are no longer stable, you know, it's good to have a buffer along streams, like New York City's trying to do up on a scary watershed. They're trying to buy buffers where they have plants and trees that in high water the banks are stable i mean what happens locally if there's no buffers along the stream when you get high water and the floodplain you know goes outside the stream bank and erodes the stream and causes uh, the stream to get shallower and gravel change and things of that nature so it's, it's important to uh, uh have buffers along these streams and protect them for sure i mean for one thing these smaller streams, like the tribs I talk about, they're very, the, the canopy is very thick, so they stay cool all year long. I mean, they may disappear to almost nothing, it'd be little blue ribbons, but they stay cold. The Esopus, which is a wider stream, and some of the, like the Scary Creek is a much wider stream, when they shrink, the shade, the canopy is no longer over the stream, so they can warm up quicker. Uh, what's important in the Esopus, it's a, a freestone stream, so the oxygen content is very high. So that offsets, to a certain extent, higher temperatures in July and August. What do you mean by these rocks? Yeah. What do you mean by freestone? Yeah. Can you describe that? Define freestone for people. Sure. A freestone stream is a, a stream that with a lot of rocks and a lot of turbulence, turbulence, a lot of uh, foamy kind of water, bubbly water. You see rocks and, and swirling and stuff like that where a, a tailwater uh, tends to be more of a flat glassy stream almost looking at a, a mirror you know it's there some of these tailwaters are much harder to fish i mean they, when you weight them you send wakes across the stream and you spook the fish easier and it, in a freestone stream you can get pretty close to a lot of these fish because of the, the currents and and the fact that the currents break up the water and fact that the fish don't always see through these currents and, and you can get much closer to the fish than you can in some of the tailwaters hmm. um what about uh, yeah go ahead okay uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if i answered your question was that adequate enough yeah i mean the other thing i guess to me what's different in the catskills is when you know when i used to work in the green mountains of vermont or i'd look at the whites in new hampshire they just don't seem to have the pools that we have like um there's the pools are like there's just the way the rock is, the geology just seems different in the Catskills. I don't know if that's just my bias or I don't, what do you think about that? Do you, do you compare it to other mountain ranges? Well, uh, I'll talk about the Catskills versus the Shongongs, for example. Uh, I, my wife and I used to hike the Shongongs quite a bit down at uh, Manawaska State Park and, and, and the Mohonk Preserve. And there's several little streams down there, but most of them don't have any fish in them except for the Coxenkill. That has brook trout in it. Now, you know, it has to do with the pH of the stream and the uh, fact that it's sheltered and stuff of that nature. So the, the gunks, the highest points down there are a little over 2,000 feet. The highest point in the Catskills, Slide Mountain, 4,000-plus feet. So um, 
it's not necessarily what the stream has in terms of the rocks and things like that. I think it has more to do with the water quality, the pH, the temperature, insect life, uh, things of that nature. Yeah, that, I mean, I grew up uh, on the Shangham Ridge, and th- where the where the shale comes to the this is what we've always been told. We used to do acid rain studies as kids there. But like Mohonk has a shale bottom in places and it has fish, uh-huh. whereas Minnewaska and Awasin do not, and it has no buffering capacity. It's just too acidic. Right. That, that has to do with the pH for sure. You know, pH also. I mean, with snow, snow melt affects uh, the the acidity of a stream. Uh, years ago, uh, when I taught at Rhinebeck, I taught uh, seventh grade math, and we had uh, trout in classroom tanks. And I raised trout along with the science teacher. I taught seventh grade math, and she taught science. And uh, she would use bottled water, and I would take water from the local stream over here, the Landsman Kill. And I went in over a holiday break one year, and I wasn't really paying attention, wasn't thinking about it. There was a snow melt, and I had to recycle the water in the tank because the fish in there, a lot of waste and you have to the ph drops and you have to recycle it unfortunately after the snow melt i took water from the landsman kill put it in there without thinking and then when i came back it was like a 50 50 percent more tally in the fish because the ph really <laughs> went down in the tank and it killed a lot of fish so ph is a major factor for small fish more so for smaller fish than big fish that's what usgs says in terms of the upper never sink when you get up along the uh uh uh, 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 uh uh, up near uh, uh, Wintersook, the lake up there. There's some larger fish and in terms of eight, nine inches, but not too many small fish because the pH is, is low, and, and the smaller fish don't tolerate it as well. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, is it that's true maybe on the Upper East Branch never sank too, or, or not? I've always heard that. I don't know. The acid's well, bad. Well, you know, uh, here's the interesting thing about the, East Branch, uh, the Upper East Branch here. I do fish there through um, Frost Valley Fly Fishing Club. And in recent years, I also helped USGS do a number of shocking uh, events up there. And in recent years, a number of dams have washed out from Irene, and the pH has changed. It's improved. And what they found is that brown trout are moving upstream. They're finding brown trout further upstream than they ever did before. Brook trout are more uh, acid tolerant, so you find them in you can find them in acidic streams. Where rainbows and browns, not so much. But the brown trout are now starting to move upstream. And I guess over time, if you went out far enough, it could become a brown trout stream as opposed to a brook trout stream. The Upper East Branch is a, a very good brook trout stream, but very good in terms of uh, fish that are four to six inches. Eight inches would be a big fish, and every now and then you might get one 12. But, I mean, the average fish up there is four to six inches long, little wild brook trout. Yeah. Good thing, John. Uh, when you talk about streams, you said a little bit about, you know, the rock bottoms and things like that, but... Just walking up to a stream, um, in your experience, one that looks healthy to you, what are you looking at? What do you see? And maybe adversely, you know, what looks unhealthy? Um, well, I look at the water itself. What's the color of the water? Is there, is there junk in it? Is there, um, is it foaming? I mean, is there, like, could be a source of pollution? I mean, there's some streams that you see iron leaching into it or other things. I mean, generally... I don't take water temperature except in the summertime. So in the summertime, I'll take a water temperature because I don't want to fish when the stream is above 70 degrees. I just don't want to stress trout out and catch any. 
In the wintertime, I don't take water temperature. The water is usually cold enough. And if you don't catch fish, I don't want to use the fact that the water was too cold as an excuse for not catching fish. So I, tend to, I try to look at online data that's, that's available. Uh, USGS has a website with uh, number streams in the Catskills. You can find flows. Sometimes you can find temperature. Sometimes you can find turbidity. So a lot of times I'll look at that. If I'm going to go somewhere to see what the flow is, see maybe what the temperature is before i spend an hour an hour and a half drive going somewhere i want to get whatever data i can to make an assessment about whether it's worth the trip or not i mean one of the luxuries of being so close to Sopus creek if i drive up down five minutes from so if i drive up to the boysville and i find the streams off color or too high then there's always tributaries i can go to if i really want to fish i mean there's always options that's what I really like about the Catskills. There's so many options around here. It's, it's unbelievable. It's not like there's only one stream to fish. On the Sopasuke watershed, there's many, many options. If you're willing to fish for tributaries, if you're not uh, opposed to catching fish that you know are six to eight inches long, you know, I mean, some people are stuck on catching, trying to catch fish that are big. I mean, I like I'm stuck on trying to catch wild fish. That's what I'm stuck on. As long as they're wild fish, I'm happy. I like to walk the environment wild fish are found in. It makes me very, very comfortable. You know, what just what tells you, Ed, that they're wild what, what, by looking at them? Well, hatchery fish tend to have their, their fins, their pectoral fins and their other fins. could be nubby and stuff like that. It could be beat up. Uh, wild fish generally have a, a better color. To be absolutely 100% sure about that, you'd have to scrape off some, some scales look at them under a microscope and see how they grow. I mean, uh, wild fish have a growth period and then a non-growth period. Or hatchery fish grow constantly because they're in their hatchery and being fed. So, But generally, you could tell by the appearance of the fish's fins and the color of the fish. Hmm. Yeah, John. Uh, that's not 100% accurate, <laughs> but generally that's fairly accurate. You keep talking about the Neversink and the Esopus, but what about the Delaware systems? Um, you like the East Branch, you know, Upper East Branch a little bit? Have you ever fished the Upper West Branch all the way, all the way to Stanford and the, the headwaters? Are I out? have. I've fished the Upper East Branch, but not in years. I used to guide, and I used to guide over the Beaver Kill Valley Inn. And when I did, I, when I come back, I, I come back by way of the Upper East Branch, and I'd stop and fish on DEP property above the, the Papacton. I have fished the Lower East Branch below Papacton. I like that summer drive. I generally don't drive over to the West Branch as much, and the reason for that is you're spending a couple hours passing all these other trout streams that are fishable. So it's hard to make that decision. If I was going to go there and stay for a couple of days or overnight, that'd be different. But just to spend that time driving and get there and driving back home, to me, it's it's a lot to pass all these other good-looking trout waters and not fish them it's funny because i live on the on the upper west branch side over in delhi and uh, i feel the same you know if i'm going to go fish i got all this water right here why am, why am i going to go all the way to the asopus or something like that but i'd like to venture no, I, over. I have a good friend that you folks might want to consider having his name is peter marks he has a place on the upper east branch and he's a catch and release spin fisherman and ryan i'll give you his information if you want he catches some very large uh browns and some small tributaries, I mean, 20 inches and better on a regular basis. Jeez. Throwing lures, catch and release. And, you know, he's up there all the time. And he comes down here occasionally. He likes to fish all different places. He'll fish down here occasionally. 
And I'll go after six inch brook trout. I mean, he's, uh, he likes wild fish and he has an appetite for any kind of fish, but he does catch very many big fish that I see. So, and that's up on the upper east branch. I don't fish that as much because I, I, you know, I find my way either to these sopas or never seen before I, I go up there. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest. Tonight's topic is fishing, climate change, and new regulations on the Esopus with Ed of Stopchuck. Ed, what's your philosophy on fishing? Um, since you, you brought up catch and release, like when is it good or not, or never to do catch and release or to keep? What, what, what's your perspective on that? Well, let me just say this up front. I, I never look down on any method somebody fishes as long as they do it legally and have a license. So if somebody wants to bait fish, lure fish, fly fish, so be it. Do what you enjoy as long as it's legal and you have a license. In terms of catching fish and keeping them, I don't think it would be a good idea to necessarily keep some of them from some of the smaller tribs unless they're loaded with a lot of little brook trout and you want a brook trout meal. But from a main stream like the Esopus or some of the other streams where there are a number of fish, you know, if that's what you want to do and it's within the regs, so be it. I mean, I'm a catch-and-release guy. I take pictures of them, and uh, that's just what I like. But, I mean, to each his own. So I have no feeling about that one way or another. I mean, once, uh, I think, I think it's October 16th. After October 16th, I have to look at, since I'm catching release, I don't really pay that close attention to the regs. But I think after October 16th, you have to release everything. And you can no longer fish bait. You only fish flies or lures. I, I believe that's the way it is, between October 16th and March 31st. Hmm. So. What, how have the regulations changed? You want to talk about that tonight on the Esopus. Um, it could be, it seems like it's confusing now. It's Every stream's a little different, or, or what's going on? Well, it, it can be very confusing. I mean, what, the, what DEC tried to do is define streams by reaches. And one stream could be a certain area that's wild fish, and another area that's stockfish. And it, it, to me, it can be confusing. But the Esopus itself is a wild quality stream. And the criteria for that is it must be over 10 feet wide. It must have uh, uh, at least uh, 300 fish per mile or so many pounds of fish per acre, right? And the Asobis meets that criteria. So from the sense of stocking, I think it makes sense. I mean, sometimes when you put those big hatchery fish in there, they're going to feed on a smaller wild fish. So by not stocking those big hatchery fish, you let the wild fish grow and fill in the criteria. Now, there are other streams that where natural reproduction is not that high. It would make sense to stock. I'm not opposed to stocking, but it should be done where it's needed as opposed to just streams should be managed based on its biology and not on what fishermen might want. Is the Asopus being sense. stocked? Uh, how much is stocking influencing the Asopus? The Asopus hasn't been stocked in three years now. I think it's the third year it hasn't been stocked. Really? Wow. Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah, so it's a wild trout fishery, and I found that the rainbows tend to be more rainbows and bigger in terms of size. In the springtime, they were averaging 11, 12, 13 inches, so they seem to be bigger, bigger in size and be more of them. Um, again, the hatchery fish have a place. They really do. And they still stock, I think, hatchery fish in the Shokin, which will run up into the Asopus, but the Asopus itself is not stocked. Um, so you're catching all wild fish there. And, and apparently angling... Oh, you there? Yeah, I think we lost Ed for a second there. All right, let's see if he calls back. We lost Ed, but uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to uh, From the Forest, and tonight's topic is fishing, climate change, and new regulations on the Esopus with Ed Ostopchuk. Yeah.
Listening to From the Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m., talk about a different forest related topic. Tonight's topic is fishing, climate change, and new regulations on the Asopus with Ed Ostopchuk. Let me see if I can get Ed back. Ed, you back? Yes, I am. All right. I got cut off. Ah, it's okay. So, um, yeah, I was going to talk to you about these regulations on the Asopus. Is there anything else you want to add on that as far as what they're doing? And I'm not sure where we got cut off, but I mean, what DEC <laughs> what is doing, they, they have a. Uh, a krill census program going, so we're monitoring fishing success and what anglers think of it. Apparently, anglers support this uh, new regulation. Uh, they're finding more wild fish for sure, so it seems to be successful. So from that standpoint, I think it is a success. As I start to say, and I don't know if you heard it, sometimes when you put those hatchery fish in there, they feed on the smaller wild fish, so you don't give those wild fish a chance to grow up and fill in the population. I mean, and the hatchery fish... Their life expectancy is nowhere close to what wild fish is. Generally, they're gone within six months, most hatchery fish. They're either caught out or die. So the wild fish you want there, they're going to be there for several years. You know, that's that's an important thing. So, 
I would like to talk about climate change just for a minute. I, I mentioned this in my latest book. Um, there's, I, I mentioned earlier that you can get a lot of information from USGS uh, uh, stream databases. And there's a, uh, a gauge on the Osobis Creek at Colebrook that went into effect in March of 1932. So it's been here almost 100 years, 91 years, I guess. And in terms of the greatest floods, I put together a synopsis of the greatest floods. Since, 19, uh, since January 1st of 2021, so that's only uh, since January 1st of uh, uh, 2000, my mistake, since January 1st of 2000, 40% of the worst floods over that 91-year period have come in less than a quarter of the time. So that's an indication of what's happening. I mean, the worst flood we had was Hurricane Irene, where the Esopus at uh, Colbert peaked at almost 76,000 CFS, cubic feet per second, all right? And we see these events more and more often. I mean, you see, you read about uh, the flooding, I guess it was Libya. You read about flooding in other places. Um, I remember where recently there was a flood in the United States recently. There were cars washed away, things of that nature. You know, on a yearly basis, we seem to get the same amount of rain, but instead of having 12 rainfall events that add up to 8 inches, you may get two that add up to 8 inches and five others that are, there's no recording almost. So the storms are more significant, and I I think where I've seen the greatest impact is on some of the tributaries. I've seen uh, bank erosion, trees down. does affect the mainstreams for sure. I mean, the pools change, things of that nature. You see turbidity build up or clay banks open up. But I, the tributaries seem to be the, affected the most in terms of the damage it does here because there's no floodplain. You know, a lot of times these tributaries have a narrow channel. And they don't have that floodplain. So when the water rises up, it just tears the banks apart. And I think that's a serious issue. I mean, I, and I have no idea what to do about it. I mean, uh, a lot of people have no idea what to do about it. But I think it's, it's, it's here. You know, it's a real thing. Where's the um, other 60% of floods? Where do they occur since 1930s? Well, the other 60% occurred on the Osopus. I'm talking about on the Osopus itself. Measured at Colebrook, 40% of, uh, 42% of the worst floods occurred since 2000. So in the last 23 years, 42% of the worst floods occurred. If you go back um, 80 years prior to that, there's, you know, that's a longer time period. <laughs> floods, yeah, we had floods, but not on a regular basis. I mean, they're more regular now. That's the point. Much more regular now than they were before. Yeah, I just like to see the data, like where the other 60%, you know, what years, if there was a, within that 60 years, if there was a 10, 20, 25-year period where it, it rained a lot or there was floods. Well, fairly spread out. I mean, the worst flood was August of uh, 28, 2011. That was Irene. Right. The next worst was March 21st of 1980. I don't know what that was. That was 65,000 CFS. And the next one was uh, March 30th, 1951. Some of these floods that occur in March, what happens, I remember some of them, you have a good snowpack, and then it gets warm, and you give it heavy rain, and it, it takes all the snow, just washes away. In 2005, April... Uh, a third, there was 55,000 CFS. And in 33, in August, so that was a summer one, 55,000 CFS. Another one in 55. Uh, 
54 CFS, 66, 54 CFS, 87, 52 CFS, 52,000 CFS, 57, 47,000 CFS, and 2010 there were two. October, 44,000, and then December, uh, the, around the Christmas time, 40,000, and 12, 20, Christmas Day, 39,000. So they're spread out for the most part, except for the last, except for the last uh, 23 years. You know, 40% of them are, are occurred then. So I think that's a change in weather patterns is the point I'm trying to get across. Yeah, it could be. I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, I wonder how culture has also affected it. Um, you know, we have forest regrowth in the last 100 years, which has been extremely significant. I don't know how that would influence streams. I have my ideas from, from hydrology class, watershed hydrology, but that's about it. Um, there's also, as impervious services in, in, increased or decreased near streams? I don't know. Dairy farms well, are going... I don't know so much in the Catskills. Yeah. I mean, uh, maybe, maybe somewhat. Uh, I mean, forest regrowth has, for sure. Yes. We know that. I think that's been helpful, but, you know, um, you get these heavy rains. You know, you get eight inches of rain in a 12-hour period or 24-hour period. It's a lot of water that comes down, and it just runs off. You know, it's gone within a day or two for the most part. Yeah. Unless it's really significant. And, I, you know, it doesn't sink into the ground. It just runs away and tears things up. Sure, I know. You know, I just remember in school, like you know, you don't want you want sinuosity, you want you want buffers and riparian buffers. That's what we were taught. And then there's old timers say, well, they used to get out in the stream and and dig them out more. I don't really know if that. I don't think that's the better way to do it. But apparently, people no, did problem, used to do that. I think the problem with channelizing streams is maybe it helps right where you channelize. Right. But it it picks up the speed and it's going to cause a problem down. Oh, no doubt. That's what we learn in school, and, and I believe that. But now there's none going on. I mean, I just, you know, it's, it's tough to say. I think we have to rule out all the cultural changes as well, or, or you know, each one of them, one by one. Yeah. Well, I think what DEP is trying to do with their, the Ashoka Warsaw Stream Management Program, they try to reestablish stream banks in places, and I think they try to stabilize them. Yeah. So, you know, you don't have this runoff as bad as it was. You don't have turbidity. And I mean, DECs, DEP is really interested in the turbidity of the water, so they don't have to filter. But, I mean, it's their benefit, too, that the stream banks are stable so that we, we don't have a mess, you know, things like that. I mean, they don't need their choking, spilling, and then flooding downstream. And they, they take a lot of grief over that, you know, so. How is um, adding Schoharie water through the through another watershed to the Esopus affected? Well, I think the Schoharie, unfortunately, well, unfortunately, the Schoharie is the smallest of all the New York City uh, Catskill Reservoirs. Yeah. So their cold water supply is limited, and Schoharie is mandated, the uh, New York City DEP is mandated to develop a cold water plant that uh, between, I forget the exact time period, somewhere in June and early September, the water should not exceed 70 degrees coming out of the Shandakin Tunnel. So they manage the amount of water they divert. And what's happened in recent years, the, uh, the water release regulations that were passed in 76 allow for up to four recreational releases on the Esopus where they have kayak events, canoeing events, and stuff like that. This summer, they canceled ones that were supposed to be early in the season because last summer, they allowed one of them, and they ran out of cold water, and the Esopus was at 80 degrees in the summertime, which was a real issue. So 
we've got to learn how to manage the limited cold water that comes out of this Gary Reservoir and when to make diversions and when not to. I mean, the city, I know they're in the water, the water business, putting water in faucets down in the city, but they can do it in a, a way perhaps that they didn't do back in the 30s and 40s, where it was all or nothing. You know, they got to manage a little bit more. And they have models and things like that, and they work with the DEC. So I think they've gotten much better at it, you know. So I think we got to conserve that cold water that's limited. How do you think that in that time span, um, Ed, that the abandonment of farming has changed the stream? Um, some of it occurred since, you know, when you started fly fishing in the 70s. So uh, you must have some personal anecdotes, but also in your research. Well, on these sofas, I haven't seen it as much because I think the stream is pretty much as it was. I, what I have seen on these sofas is more development of Woodland Valley. Woodland Valley Creek itself, I've seen more houses up there. I think when you develop too many houses, uh, put up too many structures in the floodplain, I think that's a mistake. Uh, I think <laughs> I think the landowner, the person who built those houses, is going to pay for that mistake over time. Uh, but on the assumption, I haven't seen changes in the uh, farming. I just haven't. It's never really been a farming uh, a stream, per se. A farming culture along that river. Okay, well, well alternatively, I mean, the... the Upper East Branch, for example, has got to be a big change in the, in the lifetime of, of your tenureship of, of fly fishing. You must have seen something there. Huge. I know you said you didn't, uh, you don't, you know, yeah, it's not your regular I, stream, but you still go over there some. I, I don't feel like commenting on something I'm not really that familiar with. I, mean, yeah. I only fish it periodically, so yeah. it'd be unfair for me to make comments. Yeah, I just wonder because, uh, you know, I, I don't know either, but it's it's got to have a change, positive or negative. I don't know what it is, but uh, I'm curious to know. Yeah, we hear everything across the board, right, John? I mean, we we talk to people who are much older, and uh, fishing was better when the farms. And I'm like, how is that possible? It goes against everything we were taught in school, right? Well, and you don't know you what know, to believe, but it, it needs to be it needs to be researched for sure. I think. Well, I'll tell you one example um, on the Upper Neversink in the Frost Valley waters. They have a lake up there, Lake Cole, and they they have a, a, a drains and. And where it drains into the Neversink itself, the uh, plant life below that is very rich. So I think there's a certain amount of nutrients that come out, <laughs> and the plant life is rich, and the insects are a little more active. You know, a certain amount of nutrients in the river is a good thing. I mean, it really is. I mean, it, it helps the plant life, it helps insects and stuff like that. I mean, you don't want to pollute the river, but right. there's nothing wrong with a, a little bit of nutrients coming in. And so I have to, I would believe to a certain extent that farming probably helped in some ways yeah it's interesting but again yeah. I'm, I'm i'm speculating it's right, purely right. speculative based on my limited knowledge yeah it's just an idea yeah that's what we've heard too from from very local people that the farming to some degree helped the insects but there's no you know i haven't seen any concrete evidence of it yeah and how many pictures have you seen of uh you know every farm boy and their father holding up you know 18 20 50 fish on a stringer and it's like how could the how could the uh, stream support that and uh, well, you know, back then, I don't know as many people fished, and the regulations were different. I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, no there was one, there was a lot more people living real close to the land, and it just seems like right. I mean, a lot of them had a lot of kids. I just know hmm. how young boys like to go fish that Funny. I that I uh, pay attention to. Seven days a week. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, what do you think about fishing, fishing predation, uh, Ed? In terms of natural predation, uh, uh, yeah. Well, I've this this. Past year was an interesting year when you think about the weather. 
May and June were fairly dry and warm, I thought. And I can only com- I'll comment on what I saw in the upper Neversink. I saw a lot of white excrement along the rocks where birds of prey were eating fish. I mean, a lot of it, which is usually I don't see that until fall when streams, and in normal year, streams usually get thinner in the fall when you don't have as much rain, a drier summer. You know, I mean, typical, you have a wet spring and maybe a dry summer, and in the fall, the streams are very shallow, and I'd see a lot of predation then. But this year I saw it in May and June, and then we had a wet July and August and September, and I haven't seen nearly as much of it. But clearly I do see meganders on streams or eagles on streams, especially the upper Neversink, that, you know, take fish or mammals take fish. I mean, you do see it for sure. But, I mean, that's a natural cycle. It's going to happen no matter what. It's always happened. So I don't think that's uh, a major concern. I mean, it's, it's always been like that. Well, I mean, again... These, these things need to be studied. Well, we tried getting someone from the D.C. on, but um, they had to go through a rep in Albany. But um, talk about predation and studies. And mm-hmm. we know, right, anecdotally at least, that farm rate, farmers used to kill chicken hawks <laughs> regularly. Uh-huh. And many bird of prey, for that matter. I mean, actually, there was a whole time period where Americans were killing every bird of prey. No, the man, bald eagle was rare. Right. So, you know, these things were actually not maybe always around. Um, so I don't know. I mean, the problem with fish is they don't move. You know, deer deer have a wider area to go through for, for well, predators. Well, be careful when you say fish don't move. I don't think that's so true. Huh. <laughs> I mean, I mean, they can't get on a bus. They can't get on a plane and move totally. But yeah. I, I think when you look at streams like uh, that are tributaries of the Ashoka Reservoir, whether it be the Sopas itself or uh, some of the tribs, as the water warms up or drops, they will move and they will hide. Now, what happens, I think, when the water drops, when the streams get real low, the fish that get picked off tend to be the bigger fish. The birds get them because they can't get under the rocks and hide mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. The larger fish, I think, are the ones that get picked off. For the little fish, the little three, four-inch, five-inch fish, they can hide under these rocks and crevices and stuff like that, where some of the larger ones can't unless there's some undercut banks or, or, uh, or woody debris in the stream, places for fish to hide. So it's a function of what's available for them to protect themselves, you know. But I do think as streams go down, birds and mammals do eat fish, without a doubt. Yeah, I, just, I mean, geez, you know, some of these books um, by Nick Karras, for example, and mm-hmm. some on the upper beaver kill, uh, they wouldn't say length, but numbers of fish, 40, 60 per day. But mm-hmm. it was the 1800s. The bird of prey were far fewer, far fewer. Well, and and fur bearers, mink, otter, mergant, I mean, geez, you know, otters, geez. Going back to uh, the upper Neversink at Frost Valley, they, they used to have a pond, well, they still do, white pond. They used to have one native brook trout in it. And uh, one year there was an otter there, and the fishing got pretty thin. I mean, that otter really did a job in a brook trout. Unfortunately, what happened to that pond, when I think it was Irene, Lake Coal overspilled, and perch got out of Lake Coal into White Pond and purchased out-compete with the brook trout. Now into the brook trout pond. There used to be some really nice brook trout near the fall. I mean, 14 to 16 inches and up, you know, catching a fall. Yeah. But no more. I mean, it's dead. I mean, it's, it's a perch stream now. It's perch and panfish. Well, that's when you get the rote now now, right? Right? <laughs> yeah, they didn't want to do it. We, we were hoping they would do it, but they, they didn't do it. So huh. it's a thing of the past. 
So. Ed, Ryan and I read an article not too long ago. It was from earlier this year. Um, they were talking about a stream in Montana of zombie fish uh, and wondering what's causing it. seems to be uh, maybe bacterial, viral, could have been uh, fishing-related. Is there anything like that in the east? Have you heard of that? Did you see that article? Near time. I didn't, no, I didn't see that article, but I know I think it's um, the Susquehanna River down in Maryland. Some of the smallmouth bass down there have these growths on them, and they have these odd, uh, like cancer-like things, uh, you know, on their on their bodies. And, and I guess one of the other problems in the Catskills, not so much the Catskills, but in New York State, that Region Three, kind of New Pulse was concerned about, is the snake, the snake, uh, snakeheads. Hmm. Um, they're like an Asian delicacy, and they were released in a few streams, and they can walk from water body to water body, and they do damage. I mean, they do a lot of damage, so. DEC was very concerned about trying to uh, control that uh, population of uh, predators. Hmm. So where do you see the future for uh, fishing in the Catskills? Um, where do you see it going, Ed? I think it's pretty good right now. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, barring natural disasters, I, I think uh, I think is trying to do a good job. I applaud them. I, you know, I think they're trying to manage the fisheries as opposed to the fishermen, which I think is important. Um, I think that's a major step forward. The, the fish are there, and the fishermen will come. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I think it's as good probably uh, as it was years ago, at least the Esopus. Although at one time, the Esopus had a run of really big rainbows in it. And what I, what I was told by different people from DEC and others, there used to be uh, emerald shiners in the Ashokan, uh, that rainbow trout fed on, and there were a number of rainbow trout back in the pre-60s, maybe early 70s, that would, on an average, in the springtime, be 20 inches and better, 20, 24 inches, big rainbows, and they fed on emerald shiners, and apparently some fishermen dumped salt bellies in there, and the salt bellies outcompete the emerald shiners, and they, the emerald shiner population crashed, and the big rainbows seemed to disappear, I mean, the really big ones, the 20, 22s, 24s. I mean, there's there's a friend of mine, his name is Eddie Cahill. His dad had uh, Cahill Lodge in Mount Tremper. They have pictures of rainbows 26, 27 inches long, and you don't find those for the most part anymore. Not to say they don't exist, but they're, they're not as common probably as they once were. Did you ever fish those landlocked salmon in the Neversink? I know, I know a guy used to do that. I have fished for landlocked salmon, not so much in Neversink. I walked into the headwaters at once, and... Um, <laughs> I saw these big fish rising, and a friend of mine who I went in with said, why don't you go for them? And I cast some dry flies over, and I got a 19-inch sucker. It's the first time I ever got a sucker on a dry fly. I was really <laughs> shocked. But uh, Bill Kelly, who was a retired DEC biologist, he lived in um, off Hunter Road, and he would have a key to get through a Big Ben Club, which was owned by Ed Hewitt. And he would go down to the Never Sink, and he would fish the landlocks, and, and he he would do okay down there. I don't think the population is nearly as uh, stable as the EC would like. Uh, every now and then on the upper Never Sink, uh, some of the club water, I'll catch some landlocks. I only got one this year that was about nine inches. I mean, they're small. So hmm. I don't know if they still run up there or not. I mean, I, I'm not sure how stable that population is. Yeah. The browns run up. I mean, because every now and then I got some big browns up there, like 19, 20 inches. Yeah. They're coming out of the reservoir. So they're not stream fish. Um, is someone getting into fishing, what would be your advice to them? Um, I think the best thing is look at a few YouTubes and, and 
fish as much as you can. Learn from experience. I mean, years ago, I read from books, and the books didn't have very many pictures or drawings or stuff like that. And I'd ask other people, but I, I would start with bait for sure, uh, so you get a sense of where fish lie and, and how they react and things of that nature. And over time, if you want to go to lures or flies, so be it. But I, you know, you want to catch fish, so I would start with. Uh, Worms, not night crawls, but small little worms, and things of that nature, and uh, have a good time. Well, Ed, thank you for coming on tonight. We really appreciate your time. Well, I appreciate you guys putting up with me and uh, working out, even though I couldn't get there. So I hope this worked out okay. No, that's okay. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me again. All right. Take care, Ed. Have a good night. Right. You too. Bye now. And that was uh, Ed Ostopchuk. Uh, he uh, also is with Trout Unlimited, and he's talking tonight about fishing, climate change, and new regulations on the Asopus. And uh, it's just about all time we got. I think next week we're going to do an um, forestry check-in. Yep, I think that's the plan. That's the plan, Stan? That's right. I won't be here. I'll be up in the main woods playing. Going after the old moscus. Moose and grouse. I'll shoot one, for Christ. <laughs> you know? Bring back some moose steaks. I don't you? have the tag, but I, I'll bring you a moose steak if one goes down. Good Lord. <laughs> you know, don't be passing up on it because it's... How many chances are you going to get out of moose, you know? Once in a lifetime. I guess it's twice now. Yeah, twice for someone. <laughs> anyway, that's all the time we got. Zane, you got anything to say? Oh, you're not even on the thing. Yeah, I'll get you on, Zane. <laughs> Zane just went out hunting for the first time, uh, bow hunting last Saturday, Sunday, right? Yeah. All right. It's exciting. Well, the weather's going to change after today, and it'll be back to fall. Hopefully, it'll be a little better. Yeah. Get them here running, walking Figuring more. Out. Yeah, we'll see. All right, have a good night, and see you next week. Good night, everyone. All right. Oh, the neon lights were flashing, and the icy wind did blow. The water seeped into his shoes, and the drizzle turned to snow. His eyes were red, his hopes were dead, and the wine was running low. And the old man came home from the forest. His tears fell on the sidewalk as he stumbled in the street. A dozen faces stopped to stare, but no one stopped to speak. For his castle was a hallway, and the bottle was his friend. And the old man stumbled in. Coat around him as upon his cot he lay And he wondered how it happened that he'd ended up this way Getting lost like a fool in the forest And as he lay there sleeping a vision did appear so dear Who'd loved him in the springtime of a long forgotten year When the wildflowers did bloom In the forest Delia IOX is supported by you and the following underwriters.
Andy's Guitar Repair in Margaretville, specializing in fretted instruments, structural repairs, setups, fretwork, electronics, and custom wound pickups. Andy's Guitar Repair, by appointment only, by text or phone call, 845-384-2970. 845-384-2970. Andy'sGuitarRepair.com. Zeta's Bar on Main Street in Margaretville, serving cocktails, bourbons, a wide selection of wine, international and local beers, toddies and mocktails, farm-to-table French cheeses and hors d'oeuvres, all in a relaxed, Parisian-inspired speakeasy with live jazz, blues, bluegrass, and vintage country music on weekends. 